0: I'm going to read just those four verses, verses 26 to 29. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is God's word. Let's pray one more time Father we do thank you for your word we do thank you that you have spoken and continue to speak by your spirit through your word we ask that you would visit with us, Holy Spirit we ask that you would come and give illumination and understanding and and even application Uh, Lord we are in desperate need of your help and I'm reminded of of Martha's words concerning her brother. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, we know that when you are near and when you are pleased, you give life. And so we ask that you would be here. Lord, we pray that supernatural work would take place through our prayers, through our our preaching and our listening, our reading, our fellowshipping today as we seek to honor the Lord Jesus and exalt Him as King over all. Lord Jesus, visit with us, worship with us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, hopefully you remember from last week that we have entered into what I called a very solemn occasion. We know, because of what we can read in John's Gospel of the upper room scene, that these are probably the most intimate and uh, sobering moments that our Lord ever shared with His disciples, all of them together. And as we move forward, particularly from this scene in the upper room all the way to the cross... We need to keep that in mind and and hopefully keep that attitude of of solemnity about us. I also want you, and hopefully I'll be able to do this as well, I want us to be able to feel free to use our biblically informed, sanctified imaginations to um, not eisegetically but contextually... Um, get into the scenes that we're reading here in Matthew's Gospel. Um, there's not a lot here by way of illustrative information because Matthew's audience didn't need a lot of illustration. He could say, as they were eating, and his audience knows exactly. The, the, the scene of the Passover would have laid out before them, but for us, um, separated by, again, time and space and, and context and, and history... We need to bring into the text um, all that is there, we might say, between the lines. Of of course, without reading into the text something that's not here. Remember that in verse 17, Matthew's already told us that it is the first day of unleavened bread. In verse 20, we read that it was evening and, and Christ is reclining at table with the disciples. The Passover meal started... After dark, the the festivities wouldn't even begin until they could see three stars in the sky. And so as night falls, they would begin the Passover meal. We know from the context and from what we can read elsewhere in the Gospels that it was cold outside. We know that there was no electricity. And so this upper room that they've entered would have been illuminated by candlelight and because of what we know of the feast, that there would have been uh, distinct smells and sights and thoughts um, all revolving around this entire scene. And I'm gonna, I'll, I'll be bringing some of that to light as we walk through the text. But all of that would fall under what I'm calling a biblically informed, sanctified imagination. Not reading something that isn't here, but reading what Matthew's audience would have assumed and understood. So we come to verses 26 to 29 and we are reading of what has come to be called the Last Supper. And whenever some of you hear that phrase, the Last Supper, your mind is immediately taken away to Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the table. And they're all on one side and there they are spread out across the table. That more than likely has nothing to do with what the scene actually looked like. But they are in a large furnished upper room and they've sat down to the Passover feast... And I've broken up these four verses into three headings that I hope will just allow the Spirit-inspired text to give illumination to the mind and to the heart. Remember, this is narrative text. This is just a scene in the story. And at the same time, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and is profitable for everything that the Spirit would have uh, for us to see here and get from it if we will pay attention And so, in verse 26, we're going to look at the bread. In verses 27 and 28, we're going to look at the cup. And then in verse 29, we're going to look at the promise. So those are the three headings. The bread, the cup, and the promise. Notice first, the bread. Matthew says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now Matthew tells us that this entire scene unfolds as they were eating. Again, they're eating the Passover meal which was instituted in Exodus chapter 12. I want to read to you from verses 3 to 9 of Exodus chapter 12. Again, just to bring the picture before you, all of this would have been in the minds of the disciples as they were. We're eating. We read in Exodus chapter 12 beginning in verse 3. God says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. Take the lamb on the tenth day, keep it till the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Literally, I told you last week, between the two evenings of this fourteenth day of the month, which would be the first day of the Feast of Passover. Says, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Now that practice would have only happened on that first Passover. They didn't do this every year, painting the blood on the, on the lintel of the houses, but on that first Passover they did, and every subsequent Passover there would have never been able to escape the picture and the meaning of the blood of the lamb that had been slaughtered earlier that day. They shall eat. "...the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts." And so when Matthew says, Now as they were eating, we know that everything that takes place is contemporaneous with that Passover meal that would have consisted of roasted lamb unleavened bread with bitter herbs, and by the time Christ was on the earth, they would have introduced several cups of wine throughout the Passover meal. While they're taking part in this meal with all of its prescribed and traditional elements, we read, Jesus took bread. In the very first Passover and every subsequent Passovers and even today if you were to go into a Jewish home and sit down to a Passover meal, there is a head of the household or a facilitator who leads the family through the meal. When we get together and we say we're going to have a celebration or we're going to have a a get-together or we're going to have a shindig, they're pretty much all the same. No matter the occasion, they're all the same. Everybody shows up. When the food's ready, we say the food's ready. We say a prayer and then everybody just sort of helps themselves. And you eat and you sit down and you come back for seconds and thirds and you eat and you have conversations. They're pretty much all the same. The Passover was not that way. The Passover was a what we might consider a liturgical feast. A feast that was carried out and ordered almost according to a script. And that script was led by the facilitator, by the head of the, the family, the head of the household. And so when we see Jesus took bread, we see that Jesus is the head of this feast. He's the leader, the, the facilitator of the Passover meal. Jesus took The bread, the unleavened bread. Representative of the haste with which the children of Israel were taken out of the land of Egypt. They were told, don't bake your bread with leaven. You don't have time to let it rise. Cook it unleavened. One of the prescriptions for the feast of unleavened bread or the the festival of the unleavened bread was on the first day. All of the leaven had to be removed from every household. So when he takes bread, it, it is not like he reached out and took a loaf of bread like we picture but it would have been almost like a big flour tortilla, a large piece of unleavened bread. And he takes this bread in this liturgical feast. Just picture it. Now, you're there. You're not just doing whatever you please. You're not saying, I'm, I'm finished with my plate. I'm going back for seconds or now it's time for dessert. But every step of the meal is led by the facilitator. Jesus reaches out His hand and takes the bread, and in that moment, whatever conversations might have been happening would probably have all died down as they look to Him and wait for Him to speak, to give the instructions for the next step of the feast. So so all eyes, as His hand goes out, all eyes turn to Him, and they wait to hear what He's going to say. So He took the bread and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples." So He says a prayer. We know from the other Gospels that it is a prayer of not only thanksgiving, but also a prayer of a blessing. He pronounces a blessing. Very often in our culture we say, "Would somebody say the blessing rather than when somebody ask the blessing, Christ says the blessing. He pronounces and consecrates this bread, sets it apart, so it's no longer any common bread. And then He broke it. He took probably one large piece and divided it out amongst the disciples. He gave it to them. Maybe He gave, maybe he broke off an individual piece for each one. Maybe He broke it in two halves and gave it to them so that they could then break off their own piece and pass it down. The text doesn't say, but what we do know is that however the form unrolls or unravels the by the time this step is finished each disciple has a piece of this bread this unleavened bread taken from the larger piece in his hands and he waits for instructions he doesn't just eat he waits and then the instructions take eat this is my body Receive it into your possession and eat it. Put it into your mouth, chew it up, and swallow it. They have to take the bread as it's given, broken from the larger piece. They must eat the bread. And we know because of science and how the body works and biology that this bread would have been taken into the body they chewed up, their teeth would have crushed the larger piece of bread into smaller pieces and then swallowed down through the esophagus into the stomach. The stomach would then begin to absorb the nutrients of that bread. And the energy from those nutrients would be used by the body to sustain all of the functions of life from brain activity to breathing to the operation of your tear ducts to the the, uh, involuntary use of the muscles in your legs and your feet to keep you standing up. The bread and the nutrients would have been used to give life to their body. Take it and eat it. And then notice what he says. This is my body. Now there's a lot of debate around that phrase. This is my body. Without going into the debate, I think it suffices to note his physical body is still there as he speaks. He's still sitting there. There's no reason to think that the disciples would have heard him saying, when you eat this, it's going to turn into my body. They would have never thought that. There he sits. They would have never never heard Him saying, Now when you eat this, my physical body is going to be over, under, in and through this bread. Because His body is right there with Him. They would never have thought that. They would have very clearly understood Him to be speaking metaphorically. What He's saying is this bread, which formerly represented not only sustenance, but also haste, The the bitter herbs that were probably on it that would have represented the bitterness of the bondage of Egypt as well as the freedom uh, with which they were taken out of Egypt. It used to represent that. Now it represents my physical body. It used to represent one thing. Now it represents something else. Luke records it this way. This is my body which is given for you. The body of Christ... Notice he uses the present language too. Which is given over for, on behalf of, for the sake of, for the benefit of you. My physical body is being given and you are going to be the beneficiaries of the giving of my body. Just like the bread. When you eat bread, the bread's gone. No more bread. You chew it up. It's gone. But your body benefits from the dissolving of that bread into the body. It's, in a sense, given for your sake and makes the body healthy and grow and so on and so forth. So so here's the scene with regard to the bread. Christ is the facilitator of the meal. All eyes are looking to Him. They're watching. They're listening as He dictates every order of service. The bread without leaven formerly used to symbolize God's provision and the haste with which they were redeemed is now declared representative of Christ's physical body. And they eat it. Now this is hard for us. These men had partaken of years, every year. They had gone to the Passover. They had heard every year what the bread means. Every year they knew. They they knew their scriptures. Everything they had ever known and thought and believed about this particular celebration, all of a sudden, it means something else. It's changed. It doesn't mean that anymore. Notice secondly, the cup. The cup, verses 27 to 28, it says and he took a cup. So again, he's still leading, and we can uh, picture it once again. He reaches out his hand, and he takes the cup. And we, I, I picture that after he says, this is my body, that they begin to wonder, okay, this is a little strange, and maybe they're murmuring between, between each other. I wonder what's going to happen with the cup. I mean, if the bread is his body, where's he going to go with the cup? Where, where's all this happening? And as soon as he reaches out and takes the cup, I imagine... That the conversation dies down and they're all listening and they're waiting to hear what is the cup. The cup, that word a cup representative of a cup of wine that would have been drank at this feast. And I've said before, we, we talked about the Passover before, but there would have been probably four different cups of wine that were, were drank from at this Passover meal. And the, the drinking would have corresponded with a particular blessing read or spoken by the facilitator taken from Exodus chapter 6 where God there is promising His delivery. This, that's before the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 6 verses 6 and 7 we read, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And they brought that into the feast. And so yearly they would have these four cups... And the facilitator would take the cup. He would read or pronounce the particular blessing at different stages throughout the Passover feast. So he would say something like, I will bring you out. Or, the Lord our God said, I will bring you out. And then they would all drink from that cup. Then later on he would say, The Lord our God has said, I will deliver you. And they would all then drink from that cup. And most most agree that those first two cups would have been drank before the eating of the lamb and the, the, drink, the eating of the bread. And then following the eating of the lamb and the bread, he would have pronounced, the Lord our God has said, I will redeem you. And they would drink from that cup. And then later on, the Lord our God has said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And they would drink from that cup. And the facilitator leads every step of the meal. Matthew says and he took a cup. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 25 that he took the cup after supper. And this is why many commentators believe this was probably the third of the four cups. The promise would have been spoken, I will redeem you. I will buy you. I will pay the price to bring you out from bondage. And then they would have drank from the cup. So he took a cup and when he had given thanks, here he blesses it. He he consecrates it as well. He gave it to them. Luke says that he gave it to them and, and they were to divide it amongst themselves. So maybe they all had individual cups and they would have poured a little into each of their cups. But... Again, by the end of this step, they've all got some of the wine from this one cup. He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying... Now again, they're all waiting. They would have probably expected Him to repeat those words... I will redeem you. Or the Lord our God said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so, as they take the cup, they would be thinking of Egypt. They'd be thinking of their ancestors, Israel, as God's firstborn son, held in bondage to the cruel taskmaster Pharaoh. And God, how He promised to bring them out, and then He fulfilled that promise in strength leveled every hope in all of the false gods of Egypt. Their minds would have been thinking of that first Passover when with the final swing of God's sword, He took every firstborn son from Egypt in exchange for His firstborn son, Israel. And they would have been thinking, and they would have been taught to think of God's great love for Israel, His firstborn son. And they would have been thinking about how God showed His love for Israel, His firstborn son, such a vehement love that He would take the lives of every firstborn of His enemies in order to ransom His son back to Himself. What love? What God has ever done that? But He doesn't say that. He says, drink of it, all of you, for... and here's the reason. He sets the reason... Fourth, by way of symbolism, occasion, and objective. Drink of it, all of you, for, here's the symbol, this is my blood. Their minds would probably have been thinking on lamb's blood, but he says, my blood. And again, there's a lot of debate around that phrase, this is my blood. What does that mean? It suffices to remember, Jesus still sits with them. His physical body is right there. His physical blood was still flowing through his veins as they sat. Whoever was closest could see the veins in his hand and probably in the thin skin on the tops of his feet. His blood was there. So they would not have heard him saying, When you drink this, it's going to turn into my physical blood. Even now, Jesus' physical body And His physical blood running through the veins of His physical body is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven on high. His physical blood is in His physical body. And so we know that when He says, This is my blood, He's giving them another symbol, another metaphor. He's saying drink from this cup for the contents of this cup represent my blood. And so take it and drink it. We might say appropriate it into your body for yourself because it represents my blood. Now that symbol might have seemed a little strange to them. Now for us, Gentile Christians, the concept of the the, the blood of Christ coming through church history and having full revelation, that's not Very strange, hopefully. But to them, for him to say, This is my blood, would have been strange. That's why he doesn't finish. And here's the occasion of their drinking of it He says, For this is my blood of the covenant. The formal reason for the shedding of Christ's blood is the covenant. To these men, that phrase would not have been vague at all. As soon as He said the words, blood of the covenant, they would have known immediately what He was referencing. Because after the exodus from Egypt, God brought the nation of Israel to Mount Sinai. You know that He calls Moses up on the mountain and He gives to Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Then He gives Moses... Some more laws. In Exodus 20, 22 through 23, 33, He gives more laws which have come to be called, because of the the reference in Exodus 24, the book of the covenant. So you've got the law, the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, and then you've got some more laws which were sort of the, the application of the Ten Commandments written in the book of the covenant. Now let me read to you from that section. Exodus 24 beginning in verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord." And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, after they heard it, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. That's called restipulation. God says, Here are the stipulations. The people say, We restipulate, we agree, we, we will, we will uh, go by, we will conform to the terms of the covenant. And then it says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God gave the law. Moses writes them down. God reads from the book of the covenant. The people say, we agree to that. We agree to the terms. And upon their agreement of the terms, the blood is splattered and he says, behold, the blood of the covenant. As we've already heard, the shedding of the blood to seal a covenant was a sign. It was a picture An animal, for its blood to be poured out, had to die a violent death. The picture is, here's the blood of the covenant. You say you're going to keep it, then if you break it, so be unto you. Here's the blood of the covenant. Just as done was to this animal, so be done to whoever breaks this covenant. The blood was the seal of the covenant by both parties. When Jesus says... In Matthew 26, this is my blood of the covenant. He uses the exact same phrase from the Greek Old Testament as Moses used except for one difference. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. It's not animal blood used to seal this covenant. It is Christ's blood that seals this covenant. So the occasion of the blood is the ratification of the terms of the covenant. And then he sets forth the objective. What is accomplished? We could say, maybe secondarily, if you can use that language, by this blood of Christ, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. They're the present tense. It is poured out. As if it's already happening, it's already done. Which is poured out. Blood doesn't pour out from an elderly person when they die in their sleep. Blood doesn't pour out from a cancer patient when they die in the hospital bed. For blood to be poured out, it signifies a violent death where the out parts, the outside parts of the body are ripped open and the blood is dumped out. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. A large here, undefined number, just many. And here's the objective for the forgiveness of sins. The pardoning of failing to keep God's law. So Moses throws the blood. He reads the law to them. And they say, we will keep it. He throws on them the blood. And the picture is, God is keeping record. Whoever breaks this covenant, so be unto you. Here Christ says His blood is the blood of the covenant which is poured out not to keep track of infractions or sins, but to remove them, to forgive them, to pardon them, to lift off the guilt of breaking the law. So in drinking this cup, they're not reminded of being redeemed from Egypt. They're reminded or they're being told that they're going to be redeemed from the bondage of sins, guilt, and wages in the shedding of this blood and the ratification of this covenant. So that's the cup. Then thirdly, we see the promise in verse 29. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And we have here stated negatively and positively a blessed promise for every generation of God's people. Not just those men, but even for us. Notice what he says negatively. I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day. When he says this fruit of the vine, the the picture seems to be something special with regard to the the, um, occasion or the observance of that drinking of that wine at that table. He says it's not going to happen anymore. I'm not going to drink of this fruit of the vine, but positively until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And there's the promise. Notice He doesn't say, I love you so much that I vow that I'll never drink again of of this fruit of the vine until such and such conditions are met and you are mine. He doesn't leave it open to any hypothetical condition to be met. He says, When I drink it new with you. The assumption is He will drink it. So here's the promise. Someday... I will drink of this fruit of the vine again with you. I'm going to drink it with my disciples. And He's going to drink it in His Father's kingdom. And the disciples are going to be with Him together in His Father's kingdom. There will come a day when Christ and His disciples, and I take that broadly, all of the disciples of Christ, will once again come together and enjoy the cup together. The Bible doesn't say... I tend to think that that will be the fulfillment of the fourth cup. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And we're going to drink that cup, and we're going to say, by golly, if he didn't do it. He said he was going to take us to be his people, and here we are drinking it. All faith will be gone. We will by sight be with him, and we'll say, we're his people, and he's our God, and here we sit with him. So he brings the meal to a close. He's given his disciple a promise knowing what they're about to suffer in the hours to come, in the days to come, in the weeks and years to come. They have something to look forward to. I'm going to drink it with you again. So what what are some of the truths that we can glean from this? What I want to do is lay out several We'll close with one and then some of the others I want to take up in the weeks ahead and just sort of unfold and unpack this idea. The first thing that we can see from this text very clearly is that Jesus has changed the old Passover into something new. Jesus is clearly changing the old Passover into something new. The Passover as it was instituted is done. The old symbolism is now brought to its fulfillment. The Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So the old Passover is done away with. Application. There's no reason for any Christian, Gentile convert, Jewish convert, to concoct any pretended Passover meal in the springtime to somehow discover their roots. You're not going to learn any more about Christ and what Christ has done by celebrating types than the Word of God can teach you by opening up the fulfillment of all of the shadows. The old Passover is done. It's over. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So He's clearly changing the old Passover into something new. second thing we learn here And this is important. Jesus has stated in no uncertain terms the purpose of His death. A good study this week might be for you to go through the Gospels and mark every time Jesus Himself clearly states the purpose of His death. Not not just His coming in general, but the purpose of His death. Jesus saying, This is why I'm dying. Because right here, he very clearly lays it out. Here's one of them. There's a lot of debate that surrounds the extent of the atonement. The question is, For whom did Christ die? But biblically speaking, the question is never For whom did Christ die? Primarily, the question is For what purpose? did Christ die? What was that man hanging on that cross outside that city in 33 AD? What was he actually doing as he hang there, as he hung there? He says it right here. Covenant ratification, forgiveness of sins. Unambiguously. This is why he died. This is why his blood was shed to ratify the covenant. Thirdly, Jesus has here set forth the sacramental nature of the Lord's table. As Baptists, we don't have to be afraid of the word sacrament. We don't, we're not going to say the word sacrament. And the next week, we all come in wearing robes, and vestments, and that sort of thing. The word sacrament, as I've said before, and I, I got this from somebody else, merely means the word in visible form. The bread and the wine were used to point to something else. Now, in the Lord's table, the bread and the wine are used to point to something besides bread and wine. The bread and wine are not the point, they are simply the Word in visible form. And because we're commanded to keep the Lord's Supper in the New Testament church, the more we understand the Word set forth in visible form, the more we're able, the the, the better we're able to utilize it as a means of grace we talk about the means of grace, usually the first thing that comes to our mind is opening up the Word of God and reading it and studying it and meditating upon it. Well, Then in the Lord's Supper, we have the Word in visible form that you can taste and feel and touch and, and smell and you are reminded physically of what the Word says about that bread and about that cup, about that body and about that blood. And we'll come back to, to those in, in the weeks ahead. And I want to finish here. The fourth truth that we can see from this text and probably the most important for us today is that we see very clearly the gospel preached at the Last Supper. In this, just in these four verses, the last Passover, the, Lord's, the first Lord's Supper, Christ has set forth the Word in visible form. And this Word is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. My body. And we are reminded that since we are, since the children or flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. God took upon himself flesh and blood. The Word became flesh. That body that reclined at that table, in that body dwelt all of the fullness of the Godhead. Inside that cold candlelit room, there sat the radiance of the glory of true and living God in the flesh. This is my body, and He's he's giving it, and He's saying, Take it, handle it, see it, smell it, it's real. It's just as real as real can get. It is tangible. Take it as it comes, as a root out of dry ground, with no comeliness or, or, or beauty or majesty about it physically. Take it as it comes, without leaven, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners. Take it broken and suffering holy, without sin, everything you're not, broken and suffering, everything you deserve. Now you take it. Take the bread. Here in the bread and in the body of Christ, the whole gospel is there sitting with them as they are able to take the word in in a visible form. My body. And then he says, he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood Christ Jesus of Nazareth a real man with a real body with real veins and real skin that can be lacerated and ripped open and punctured so that his blood would pour out nothing at all peaceful and calm about his death it was a violent death his his blood did not trickle out he did not have to squeeze a drop of it out but it was dumped out poured out on the dirt for sinners Christ, the Son of God, took real flesh and real blood that He might obey and suffer as a real man for real sinners. Because we are flesh and blood, and in our flesh and in our blood, every fiber and every drop of it is is tainted and corrupt with sins upon sins upon sins upon sins. And He takes all of that upon Himself in His body. And He dumps His blood out. He bore the curse. And it's nailed to the cross. Why? To ratify the covenant, to seal the deal, to pardon sinners, to seal the deal made in eternity for sinners, to guarantee an everlasting redemption. He did not die to make salvation possible. He died making salvation actual. The covenant was sealed when His blood was poured out. Again, the whole gospel is, in, is there in the blood, reconciled by the blood, justified by the blood, washed by the blood. It's all right there. And He's preaching it to them as they drink. He says, when I drink it new with you. I'm not going to drink it anymore here, but I'm going to drink it new with you there. So he describes this violent pouring out of his blood. But what's implied by the fact that he's going to drink it again, except he's not going to stay dead? He's going to die, and then he's going to come back from the dead. So he promises his resurrection. He promises the resurrection of a physical body that will eat and drink, a physical body in which he will share communion with his disciples. Bread, cup, kingdom, promise. We see Christ came in the flesh. He died in the flesh. He was raised in the flesh. His His people will share everlasting communion with Him in the flesh in His Father's kingdom. He's saying, my Father has a kingdom that makes me a prince and a son of the king and a king myself. So all of this, this that's about to happen, me giving my body and shedding my blood, this is all according to the plan. The death of Christ was not defeat, it was the victory. His kingdom was not weakened or, or threatened. It did not deliver a death blow whenever He died on the cross. His kingdom was firmly established. Amen. The Romans didn't know it, but whenever they lifted that cross, it was, I think I've used this illustration before, the, the soldiers raising the flag. When they lifted that cross, they didn't know it, but they were planting the victory flag. They were raising the banner. That's why he says, when I'm lifted up, the the ruler of this world is cast out, and now he can no longer blind the nations. I will draw all people to myself. His father is a king with a kingdom, and he's winning. And I've said to some of you before, even the thief on the cross said, as he looked at the bloodied, beaten, suffering, dying Savior, he said, when you come into your kingdom... He knew he was a king. He could look at him and see he was a king. Right there he hung in victory. He says, And I'm going to eat this or drink this wine with you in my Father's kingdom. Now we know coming from this, the institution of the Lord's Supper or the, 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 the last supper leads to the institution of the Lord's Supper commanded in all of Christ's Churches And so Christ has promised that all who will trust in Him, who will appropriate His body and His blood for themselves will be with Him where He is. We will see Him as He is. If you trust in Christ, you'll be there. You're going to drink the cup with Him in His kingdom for all eternity. But, you must eat and you must drink. You must take Christ as He's revealed, by faith and take Him to be yours. That's the, the picture of the eating and the drinking. Faith is not mental assent. It's not just believing Jesus died on the cross for sins. That's not saving faith. It they, they would not have been sufficient for the disciples to say, I have my bread and I have my cup. It wouldn't have been enough. It would not even, been, even have been enough for them to say, I have my bread and I believe it represents the body. And I have my cup and I believe it represents the blood. That's not enough. They have to eat it and they have to drink it. They have to live off of it. Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life. None. It's not just believing facts. Christ must be your life. You're living off of Him every day. That's saving faith. Christ preached that gospel to these men at that table. He preached it to them. He gave them the Word and then He gave them visible form. And the apostle says that that gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. So we're going to pray. If you're not a Christian... Why would you not call upon Christ? He's, he, not only does He set forth the covenant, not only does He meet the terms of the covenant, but He gives His own self to you as the sign and seal, as the ratification of the covenant. Admit your crimes. Come to Him helpless, unable, unworthy, powerless, weak, having nothing, and He will give you life if you'll come to Him. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, there's not much left to be said. Examine yourselves. See in the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Christ, given and poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Make sure as you come to the table that this is not and never becomes merely tradition. Tradition. That it's never just something you do. But it is always a reminder of the word in visible form. What God has done, we are shown in ways that we can taste and touch. Examine yourself, and then we'll, we'll come to the table.